You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. You all this morning, even before I pray specifically for the sermon. Now, the sermon today will be a little bit different. Uh, it will be, just to give you an honest heads up, it will be a very weighty sermon today, a very heavy sermon, a sermon that will undoubtedly stir up a lot of feelings, a lot of difficult feelings. Um, if I'm honest, a sermon that I don't want to preach. I was just talking to the Lord today. It's just like, I don't want, I don't want this assignment. And so we'll be continuing our series on the life of David. Specifically, we'll be looking at David and Tamar. If you're familiar uh, with the story and David's life and that whole narrative, you'll know that Tamar is a daughter of David who was sexually assaulted by her brother. And so today we will be looking into this aspect of, of David's life, of Tamar's life, and we'll be talking specifically about sexual abuse and how we as a church and how the church in general should respond, how people should respond. And I wanted to give you a heads up, but b- before I pray and we get into the sermon, let me say at least a couple things. Number one is, in case you're asking why we might even do a sermon on this topic, one of the important things as preachers and really as Christians, as faithful Christians to the word of God, that we need to understand is that the, the pulpit cannot be silent where the Bible is not silent. The pulpit can't be quiet on topics because they're difficult, because they're painful to deal with if the Bible is not silent and quiet on these same issues and on these same topics, no matter how uncomfortable they are for us. And but specifically with this topic of sexual abuse, Silence is a part of the problem. Silence allows for a culture to to thrive where ongoing abuse can continue to happen unchecked when we are silent. So especially as the church, as the people of God, who understand that all are made in his image, we must not be silent. We must not shrink back from topics that are difficult, that are painful even. For us, I do want to let you know. Uh, I don't think that this is the case, uh, but in case if there were, if anyone brought any children in here, which I don't think uh, we have any small children in the room currently, we did want to let you know in case you wanted to uh, exit with them during during the sermon. Uh, I, I do want to say this, and this is something I think is important for all of us to understand in general. I would say children anywhere near the age of middle school, honestly, in my opinion, probably before then also, uh, we need to be able to disciple our children around the topic of sex, and especially when it comes to other people's bodies and how we, how we interact and engage with people un- with the understanding that everyone has a right to say what happens with their own body. So I do believe that this is a topic that we, as, as Christians and especially as parents, need to be able to talk about with our children as well, because if we're not talking to them about it, they're being trained and taught by someone. Someone is teaching our children how to deal with and think about these types of issues. And we want our children coming up, being trained in the knowledge of God and his word, that we might respond as faithful followers of Jesus, that they might know what God has to say about sex and specifically about 
how we treat other people, specifically their bodies. So I will pray for us today. I'll pray for you. If you know this is going to be a very difficult one for yourself, I want to invite you to pray for yourself as well. And also, I want to invite you to pray for everyone else in this room again, as this will be a, a challenging Sunday morning for us. Father, as I was just saying to you earlier today, this is not one that I desire to preach. This is not one that I get any type of, of joy in talking about. But at the same time, I do believe that you offer us hope. I do believe that you offer us healing, that there is no one like you, that no matter what has happened to us, we can still build our lives on your love because you are a firm foundation for us. So would you be with me? Would you be with us? Help us to see your word clearly. Help us to see you clearly. And Father, teach us how to respond appropriately. Living in a world where we where things like sexual abuse exist, where there's a need to, to teach and preach on this specific issue, Father, teach us how to cling to you and how to live as you have designed us to live. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. 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 If you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we want to be in 2 Samuel chapter 13 today. Again, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 13 today. Hopefully we were able to put one of those Bibles near you. We're going through a lot of verses. I was not able to put them all on the screen behind me. So hopefully we were able to put a Bible somewhere near you or you can use an app on your phone. I'll be coming from the English Standard Version uh, today. I do see that we do have some visitors with us today. So I wanted to introduce myself. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. My name is Anthony. Most call me Ant uh, for short. Uh, if you are new here, I wish we could have met in a time where we're talking about something different, something a little bit easier. But again, we do believe that this is a necessary topic that we get into today. I want to start us off by saying that throughout the scriptures, God is a defender of the weak. He is a defender of the weak. He cares about the powerless. He cares about those who have been taken advantage of. He cares about those who have been harmed as others have used their power to harm those that are under them. He, he, he cares tremendously in the Bible. He uses his strength and his power to help and protect and empower those who are weak and those who are downtrodden and those who are oppressed. When I use the term oppressed, I mean when someone in power uses their power, their authority, and their strength to harm someone who is under them. We see that in the Bible, God cares tremendously about those who have been oppressed, those who have been harmed, those who have been victimized by others. And specifically, the whole biblical narrative is about God created everything good. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And since then, everyone is a victim of sin. You come into this world and you are going to deal with suffering. You're going to deal with pain. You're going to deal with problems. You're going to see death. No matter how we live, no matter what we do, that is something that is going to happen to us. Jesus comes in, understands that this sin and the curse of sin is greater than anything we can deal with on our own, that we don't have the power to free ourselves from the curse of sin. We don't have the power to, to offer ourselves the forgiveness that we need to 
rid us of our guilt and of our shame. We don't have the power to free ourselves from the enslaving nature of sin as it causes us to do what it wants us to do. We don't have the power to free ourselves from death or from suffering. He comes in, sees us in our weakness, rescues us, and empowers us through his Holy Spirit to be able to fight victoriously against sin and ultimately one day to be freed from sin. The the whole biblical narrative is what Jesus does to help those who are powerless, those who need to be rescued and need to be saved. When we serve others who have been harmed by those who have used their power and their strength against them, we image the character of our God. Since my boys were three years old, I have twins. Since they were about three, I tried to teach them what does it mean for them to use the power and the strength that God has given them in a way that honors God? What does that, what does that look like? How do you do that? How do you use your God-given strength? And if you were to ask them today, hey, what do we use our strength for? They would say to help people and protect people. To help people and protect people. My sons, they will grow up to be men one day, which means, generally speaking, they will have more testosterone in their bodies than women will have, which means they are likely to have more physical strength and more muscle mass. And I need for them to be able to know what their strength is to be used for and what their strength is not to be used for. When we use our strength and our power, whatever strength and power that God gives us to help and protect those who need it, we are operating in a way that is godly when we use it to harm those that that we have strength or power over, we use it for evil. When we use our strength, power, and authority to help and protect and to empower others, we use it in a way that is godly. When we use it to harm others, we use it in a way that is evil. As we move throughout this story in the life of David, I'll draw out four different evils or four different evil roles that people play in this specific narrative in 2 Samuel 13, but we'll also notice that these aren't just ancient evils, but these are evils that are very prevalent today as well, evils that we see very often. We'll begin 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son. So now we have three people here that are all David's children. Absalom, Tamar, and Amnon are all David's children. David is king at this time, verse 2. Well, sorry, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. I'll talk about that word loved in a minute, verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. The Hebrew word that's translated love in that verse is a love that can is a word that can mean a couple different things. It, it can mean a genuine type of love, but it can also just mean sexual desire. It can also just be referring to lust as well. This Hebrew word that is translated here by the ESV as as love. So he he desires his sister sexually so much that it is sickening and it is even making himself ill. This is not a true love, obviously. He just is physically attracted to her. Amnon is a family member who has sexual desire for his sister. Some of us 
have known Uncle Amnon, Aunt Amnon, or Cousin Amnon, or maybe Mom or Dad Amnon as well. This story is relevant for us today. Again, these aren't just ancient problems. These are today's problems. The first evil role that we see playing out, and Amnon hasn't done anything in the first two verses necessarily as an abuser, but the first evil that I want to point out is the evil role of an abuser. We'll see later he goes on to sexually assault his sister in this story. The first evil role, all of these roles help to cause and cultivate a culture of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And Amnon is the abuser, as we will see, as he will sexually assault his sister in this horrible chapter in the Bible. I'll pick up in verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So this will be Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So now he is plotting. He has gone from just having sexual fantasies about her in his mind to now specifically plotting to how he can lay with her. And he's not doing it by himself, which brings us to the second evil that I want to emphasize from this story. And that's the aid. The aid. That Jonadab helps Amnon come up with a plan that he might sexually assault his sister. Jonadab, as far as we can tell in this story, from, from my understanding, is not necessarily present when it happens, the day that it happens, but he is still guilty of evil. He is still guilty of evil as he aids in it happening. He helps him come up with the plan. He conspires with Amnon. He could have stood up for Tamar. He saw that there was something wrong with Amnon. He asked him what's wrong. Amnon... Uh, Amnon confesses to him what his desires are, and he could have said, no, you do not treat a woman that way. You do not do that. This, this is evil, and you need to stop. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go let the king know, and you're going to be dealt with. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, he aids the villain in this story. He could have used his voice to speak up for Tamar, but instead he used his voice to aid in this horrible abuse of power. He could have used his power, his authority to protect and to help in a godly way, but instead he aids this villain of this evil. He too then is a villain. He too participates in evil. Not only does he aid, but I'll say that there's another category of evil that he participates in. That's the third thing I want to emphasize from this passage, and that is the cover. The cover. Not only does he aid, 
but in aiding, he covers up. He, he, he makes sure that it's done in such a way where Amnon doesn't have to be found out. He's helping to, to hide it. He's helping to cultivate what I call a culture of secrecy, a culture of secrecy. There are so many in our world today who aren't safe from the Amnons of this world because maybe we have a relative like Jonadab who aids and covers up the harm that is done. Jonadab helped Amnon get away with this perverted, this evil sexual pursuit that he has. So sometimes Jonadab is a family member. Sometimes Jonadab is someone at a party or a social event who just looks out to make sure that no one sees what is actually going on. This is evil, and the Lord hates it. Jonadab should be sounding the alarm right now. He should be making sure everyone knows how much of a threat Amnon actually is at this point. He should be protecting. He should be helping using the strength that he has. He's in the royal family. He could use that. He could have leveraged that for the good of Tamar and so many others at this time, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He goes along with things, and things obviously get so horrible from here. Verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send, send, everyone, excuse me, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Am, Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. So Amnon works out his whole plan to trick and deceive his sister so that he could have sex with her. And before we get, before we get into further, let me just say, if you are using any type of, of conniving, any type of deceit, any type of, of lying, any, any type of, of hiding anything to get someone to have sex with you, you commit evil. You commit evil. He, he committed evil way before he actually forced himself upon her. This lying, this, this conniving, this, this, this acting in the shadows, these whispers that are going on, these conversations that no one else knows what they're saying and what they're plotting and what they're doing. This, this is evil. This is sin. This is, this is horrifying to God. This, this perverted lust has already taken over Amnon's mind and his heart so much has corrupted him that he's resulted to deception, to manipulation, to get what he wants. So many times people have lied to others to get them to have sex with them. So many times people have encouraged others to just have a few extra drinks so that they can sleep with them. This is evil. This is evil. So many times people have pressured others and just maybe just tried to use their social influence to pressure others into sleeping with them. This is evil. It needs to stop. And this next part is so horrible. It's so despicable. I honestly didn't even want to read it. I just wanted to, to skip over it. 
these verses, and here's, what, here's one thing that the Bible does that you have to understand about the Bible. When I said in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, we see sin come onto the scene. We see that sin causes so many problems, even in the very beginning. The Bible is very honest about what that sin looks like on a day-in, day-out basis. So you see oppression in the Bible. You see murder in the Bible. You see so many horrific things because the Bible is honest about how horrible they are. The Bible isn't just filled with stories of things that go well because of the redemption that God brings. It's also filled with stories of things that go horribly wrong that we might know that we need a savior from sin. That sin is actually the issue and there is no more horrible set of verses in the Bible than the one that we're in right now as far as I can tell. As we see in verse 12, we see so much of the damage that sin causes. Tamar she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She's trying, as far as I can tell, everything that she knows to get him to stop. She says, don't violate me. No one in Israel does this. What, what would I do with all the shame that will come upon me because of this? And she tells him, even you would be an outrageous fool for doing this. She's like, hey, no, 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 stop. You can't, you, you can't do this. Just, just talk to the king. He would give you my hand in marriage. She's resulting in even saying, I would marry you. Just stop. Don't do this. She's scrambling to think of every reason she can to get him to stop. Anything that might persuade him, but he will not listen. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He used his bare strength. He used his God-given strength and power to violate and sexually assault and abuse Tamar and force himself on one that was made in God's image. I want to say that in a different way. He used the physical strength that God gave him to harm and abuse and assault someone made in the image of God whom he should have been using his strength to protect, to care for, to look out for. This is pure evil. She resists, but he's stronger. In verse 15, we see the hatred that was in Amnon's heart the whole time. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love. I would say that should be translated lust, greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, that she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Tamar, of course, is devastated. 
Amnon has assaulted her. His hatred that he already had for her, once the lust was gone, all that you're able to see now is the hatred that was already there in the first place. So his hatred outgrew the lust that he had for her. So he just sends her away. No concern for her. All she's left to do is weep. She goes away crying aloud. Scripture says, we'll keep reading in verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's home. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. There are some manuscripts that add a little bit onto the end of this verse, some, some Hebrew manuscripts, and even some in, in the Greek when it was translated into Greek. Some manuscripts add the phrase, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. The point is David did nothing. It says that he was very angry. He did nothing. Nothing at all. David's in power. David's the king. He can do anything he wants to do to anybody he wants to do it to. He does nothing And one of the patterns that you see in David's life is an unwillingness to discipline and punish his sons because of his, quote-unquote, love for them. This is a common thing for David. This is one of his massive problems. The fourth evil role that causes this culture of abuse to thrive is the protector of the abuser. The protector of the abuser. When strength and authority should be used to protect those who are weak, protect those who are survivors of such abuse, David uses his authority, or excuse me, chooses to not use his authority, and thus he is actively harming his daughter, Tamar. He could have taken a huge step towards promoting justice in this land. What a statement it would have made for the people of God at that time if all the nation would have seen that that King David was willing to punish his son Amnon and condemn him for sexual assault. What a way he could have stood up for women. What a way he would have been able to stand up and say the king won't even spare his son. He'll condemn his own son for taking advantage of women. He could have stood up and defended women and used his strength to protect, to serve, and to help, but he doesn't do it. It just says he got angry. Anger is not enough in and of itself. It's not enough. Sadly, this is the case so often in the church. Sadly, so often the church desires to hide incidents of abuse. Sadly enough, so often the church wants wants to just say, hey, we we don't want to deal with this. We we, we don't want to get involved. We don't want to let authorities, proper authorities, know when actual abuse has taken place and this causes problems and this too is evil. Hear me. This is evil when the church does this. We, We are not following our Lord and our Savior. We're not following our God if we cover up. If we do not seek to hold abusers accountable, we do evil as the people of God. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister 
Tamar. So basically, Amnon says he's not, Absalom isn't saying anything to Amnon secretly in his heart. He's taking his sister in to live with him. At this time, a very loving thing for him to do. Uh, Tamar, at this point, because she had already, because she had been raped and assaulted in that way, would have been very difficult just because of the way they did things. I'm not condoning this, but the way that it was, it would have been extremely difficult for her to get married at this point. At this time, he takes her in and says, okay, I will take care of you. You can live with me, which honestly for women at that time, marriage more than anything provided a place where they would be provided for and taken care of. So Absalom says, okay, I'm going to take you in. I am going to take care for you. He has this hatred for his brother Absalom. Now, I don't want to read the rest of the chapter for the sake of time, but if you read through verses 23 through 33, you'll see that Absalom actually puts together this plot to kill Amnon, to kill his brother. Just like Amnon put together this plot to harm and abuse his sister, Absalom now conspires with some of his men, and they actually go in and kill Amnon two years later. He sits with it for two years. He takes care of his sister. And then when, the, when he has the opportunity, he and his men go in and kill Amnon. So I want to be really clear. Absalom commits a sin. He takes vengeance into his own hands. The, the Bible would say vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We are to let him handle vengeance. But we also must admit that David committed a sin of omission by not doing anything at all. His daughter was raped. He knew about it, and he did nothing. The rest of the story, I believe, is the next two chapters. Absalom doesn't just stop there because Amnon is not the only one he's angry with. He's also angry with David, his dad. So after he kills his brother, he flees to another land, stays there for, I believe, it's three years, comes back and subtly, in a way that's very conniving, actually steals the trust of the people from David to him, Absalom, who, again, was a son of David. So he actually makes a play for the throne, actually successfully does this. David finds out that Absalom has stolen the kingdom from him. David has to run. He leaves the palace. He leaves the throne. And Absalom reigns as king and is waging war against his dad. And Absalom eventually dies in that war. And David comes back to the throne, comes back to the palace, to a kingdom that has just been decimated by the civil war between David and his son because David responded with evil instead of good. And if you're really familiar with the story, we talked about David and Bathsheba a few weeks ago. And when David summons Bathsheba, who I believe is Absalom's mother, if I'm not mistaken, he summons Bathsheba. She is not able to consent, summons her, sleep with, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And one of the promises that God made to David when that happened was he said, the sword will not depart from your house. He's saying there's going to be violence and there's going to be fighting in your house. And we see this all take place. So because of these four evil things that have happened, this family is decimated. This family is devastated. Because of these four evil things, this kingdom is devastated. The kingdom of God, the very people of God have to endure this war between Absalom and David. So we have Tamar who is violated and devastated. We have this whole family now, but there's literally a war within the family. We have the whole kingdom of God because of these four things, the abuser, the aid, the cover, and the protector of the abuser. We as a people of God need to be able to fight against all 
four of these. And I want to point out a few very specific things that we need to do. I've been in contact with the sexual trauma service, services, excuse me, of the Midlands to even think through and talk about what can churches do? What can we as the people of God practically do that we might fight against this perva- the pervasiveness of this rape culture that we currently find ourselves in? And they said, we, strengthening, protecting, and empowering survivors, survivors, excuse me, of abuse is something that the church has to be able to do. And that starts with us having an understanding of, it sounds very simple and trite, but I need to say it anyway. No absolutely means no. No absolutely, definitively, 100% of the time means no, no matter what. No matter what has previously been said, no matter what has previously been done, and I'm talking about any interaction where you make physical contact with another person's body. Same sex, different sex, males, women, everyone. When someone says you are not allowed to do this specific thing to my body, even if it's a hug, even if it's a hug, and here's the thing for, for us as a church, I know that for us as a church, we have a culture where we hug a lot. If anyone ever says to you, no, I'm not comfortable with that, and I want to empower anyone in the room who isn't comfortable with hugs, you state it, make it clear, and anyone and everyone who is a part of our church should respect that. If not, come talk to me. Let me know that we have someone in our church who is not respecting your physical body in the way that they should, and they will be confronted. Maybe it'll be me, maybe it'll be me and others. It starts with no, absolutely 100% of the time, every single time, all the time, no matter what has happened previously, means no. And we do not do anything to anyone's body that they are not okay with. If you're unsure, maybe you can ask, can I, can I give you a hug, especially if someone is, is new. If you're in a life group and you're not comfortable with physical touch, let that be known. And if you're in the life group, you have to respect that. You have to. You don't have a choice. You don't have an option. It's not if you feel like there's no such thing as, oh, we're family, come here. No, we don't do that. When someone says what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do with their body, you respect that. As a church, we also use our strength to protect, to empower, to help people. And oftentimes that means using our voice to condemn all four of these evils every time we see it to be able to talk to survivors of abuse and say, I'm sorry, it's not your fault. And let me, let me say this, and here's what I mean when I say it's not your fault. I, it doesn't matter what, you're, what, what you were wearing. It doesn't matter what you were doing. It doesn't matter what you said. It is never your fault. This may sound ridiculous. I don't care if you're walking around naked. It's not your fault. If someone has sexually assaulted you, no matter what, it was never, ever your fault, no matter what you did. And as a church, we can't come in asking questions like, well, what were you wearing? Well, what did you do that might have incited this? We never ask questions like that to abuse survivors. Instead, we want to empower one of the devastating things about sexual abuse as far as I'm able to understand it 
is that it robs someone of their autonomy and of their own power over themselves. So that means when we are, when someone discloses to us, and I'm going to send out an email. If you remember, you're going to get an email from me. I have all types of resources and articles that I got from Sexual Trauma Services of the Midlands that will help us understand what to do if someone discloses to us that they have been abused, that they are a survivor of sexual abuse. But one of the things that we want to make sure that we do is we want to ask questions. Would you like to report it? Would you like for me to go with you? Would you like for me to be here with you when, when you make a phone call, if that's something that you want to do? We want to empower. We want to give options to someone who has had a very important option taken away from them. This is what serving and using our power to help and protect and empower looks like. I want to talk very specifically to men in this room. I think oftentimes as men, we don't understand power dynamics very well, so I want to talk as clearly as I possibly can. As I was saying earlier when I was talking about my, my boys, if you are a man in the room, because of the amount of testosterone that you have in your body, there's a physical strength that God has gifted you with that you have. And that's especially everything that I just said earlier. It applies to everyone, men and women. But specifically, I want to talk to men and, and, and make sure we're all very aware that oftentimes, as I've heard from some women, I don't think that this is necessarily a viewpoint of all women, but I know for some women, the, there, there is a, a, a presence that you have because of your physical strength that if you ever do anything, to a woman's body after she indicates in any way, if she says no, that that is not okay, that there's a, a power dynamic where oftentimes a woman might feel helpless around you because of the amount of strength that you have. You have to be extra sensitive. You have to be extra sensitive because of the power dynamic that comes with the amount of strength that you physically possess because you are a man. There's a power dynamic that is at play that you are able to confront other men on things in a way that it might not be received in the same way as from a woman. God has given you that type of position, that type of power, and that type of authority. So I, I got to ask you, if you're ever in a locker room, which is where I've heard this type of talk the most, or wherever it is, and you hear of men talking about anything, doing any of these, we need to condemn it to them and use the power and the voice that we have given to call it out and talk about it as the evil that it actually is. This is important. This is not optional if we're actually going to image our God who is here for and who protects and serves and helps the weak. That we need to be men that stand up and make this place, Midtown Two Notch, as safe, as safe of a place as possible for all of our sisters who are among us because we understand to use, we understand that we need to use our strength, our power, our authority, and our influence to fight against this culture of abuse. We need to be able to say things like, no, you're not going to talk about her that way. No, 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 you're not, you're not going to be able to take advantage of her in that way. You're not going to touch her or connive or do anything that she does not desire in that way. Will you stand up for women when you hear men talking about them like they're less than fully human? Like they're less than an image bearer of God. Will you use your strength to make sure that our sisters around us know that we believe them, that, that we believe that, and we understand that it is not their fault, that we will rebuke any man that feels like he has access to another woman's body without her consent, that we will use the God-given strength that we have to help protect and empower 
our sisters. This is not optional for us as men. If we are to image our God and live as he lived in the way that he called us to live. As we get close to concluding today, Tamar in verse 13 asked the question. She says, ask for me, where should I carry my shame? She says, ask for me, where do I go with this shame that I feel? I think another translation says, where will I go to get rid of my disgrace? She's saying, what do I do? Where can I go? The one who should have stood up for her to protect her, her dad, didn't do it. He, he didn't serve as a king as he should. What, what, what can I do to get rid of this disgrace? She says, I want to try to use the rest of our time together today to show how our Lord and Savior Christ is where we run to get rid of our disgrace. I want to try to encourage all Tamars in this room who are survivors of abuse. And the first point that I want to make of that, and the reason why I say that our God is safe to run to, my first point is that God oppresses oppressors. God oppresses oppressors. What do I mean by that? If you notice in the book of Exodus, the, the people of God are being oppressed, being oppressed by the Egyptians. They're being forced into this harsh slavery. And so what does God do? He says, okay, you're going to use your strength. You're going to use your authority that I have given you and entrusted to you to harm this group of people that is weaker than you. And what does God do? He comes in and shows off that he has higher authority than they have. And he inflicts worse things on them than they were actually afflicting on the people of God as he brings the 10 plagues onto them. He said, okay, you're going to use what power you have to harm others. Okay, now you're going to have to deal with me because I'm going to use the power that I have to bring harm and pain and suffering onto you. This is actually consistent in other places of the Bible as well. In Isaiah chapter 10, I'll read verses 1 through 3. He says, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people their right that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. He's saying people are taking advantage of the poor, of, wid of widows and fatherless. These are all people who cannot defend themselves, who cannot speak up for themselves and defend their own rights. And this is what he says in verse 3. This is what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? He's saying, I am coming for you. You who cause harm for those who are under you, you have used the, the authority and the power that you have been given. Now you're going to have to deal with my authority and with my power because I'm coming with judgment on you. And here's the thing. God is angrier about abuse than Absalom is. Absalom comes and kills his brother Amnon, but he's not angrier about it than God is. And when we see God come back and return and bring justice for every single crime, every single amount of abuse that's ever been suffered, he is going to bring a wrath like you have never seen for all crime and all victimization that has ever happened on this world. And you will see his anger. And the reason I bring that up is because there are many of us, even in this room, who are Tamar and Amnon is running around free. 
He has not gone unpunished. He has gone unpunished. And we live in a world where that is so many times the case because we have so many who are like David who do not punish as, as we should punish and as they should punish. But there is a court that sits higher than every other court on this world. And there is a judge who sees every single thing and he understands pain and he understands hurt. And he says, no, 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 I'm coming back to bring retribution. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And there is no crime that will go unpunished because our God is willing to oppress oppressors. Our God is willing to bring pain and use his authority, use his power and his strength to bring pain to all who have used their, their, their power, their authority to bring pain if they have not run to him for forgiveness and for reconciliation with the holy God. That's our first point. God oppresses oppressors. But not only does he do that, but Jesus relates to and empathizes with survivors of abuse. He relates to. Have you thought about the victimization that Jesus himself allowed himself to endure? The night that they come and kidnap him, they bring a mob to take him away. They publicly strip him naked. They beat him over and over again. He dies in the most shameful death known to man as he is crucified naked on a cross for all to be able to see. He experienced shame. He experienced abuse. And this came because the powers that be were corrupt, because those who had power were corrupt. And so he actually submitted himself and objectified and allowed himself to be objectified and victimized in a way that many of us have not experienced. He understands what it is like to have someone use power to victimize you. He was mocked. He was shamed. He was abused by those in power. You see, God the Father is very different. He's a very different king from David because David was not willing to condemn his son that he might stick up for and save and protect and help and serve the weak. But God the Father was willing to send his innocent son and condemn him that we who are weak might come to know him so that all the sons and daughters of God who have been abused will be able to leave this place and go to a place where we'll never know shame again, where we'll never know abuse again, where we'll never know pain again. He subjected himself to shame and pain so that he could free all the sons and daughters of God from shame and pain forever. He is where we go with our disgrace. He is where we go with our shame. He is the one that both understands and empathizes and actually has the power to do something about it and make sure that there is justice for every single crime that has ever been committed. God the Father is not like David. David wouldn't, wouldn't condemn his guilty son, but God the Father condemned his innocent son that we might go to paradise with him forever and be freed from a world where sexual abuse exists. He suffered pain shame and abuse, to take away pain, shame, and abuse to all the sons and daughters of God who have been abused. He is who we trust in. I'm not saying that that's some magic pill that makes everything feel better right now because I don't believe that it does. But I will tell you that I know people who, through different forms of help, be it counseling and also running to our Lord and Savior who have found healing from the trauma that comes from abuse, that have found healing in the Lord. I'll have a few things uh, available, like I said, to you all through email. We actually also have some contact cards for you from the, the Sexual Trauma Services of the Midlands. Uh, they offer free resources for anyone, free counseling, free therapy for anyone who has suffered or who has, I should say, been a survivor of sexual assault and sexual 
abuse. And again, through email this week, I'll be sure to give out a few more resources as well. In our life group this week, in our life groups this week, we'll be talking about how do we as a church practically live out our identities as those who use the power and authority that God has given to us to help and protect and empower survivors. And we'll talk about that because I believe it's a discipleship issue because this is what our God does. And if we're going to walk in step with him, then this is what we will do as well. Let me pray for us and we'll partake in communion together. Father, we are grateful. Father, I think we, in this world of such pain, of such harm, in this world of such abuse, it seems that all of our gratitude, all of our celebration, Father, oftentimes is tainted with pain, with suffering, with scars, with wounds. Father, we look forward to the day where we will go to be with you, where you will take it all away. But God, give us strength to endure today. Give us strength to endure tomorrow. Give us strength to continue on. Father, remind us that you're near and that you understand. Remind us that you hurt with those who are hurting, that you are a defender of the weak, that you are near to those who are oppressed, that you're near to the downtrodden. Father, help us to feel your your presence. Father, help us to not allow what we have suffered to cause us to believe that you don't love us or that you're not good or that you're not present here with us. Father, make us a place of refuge for all who have survived sexual assault and sexual abuse. Teach us how to lovingly come alongside those who have suffered in this way. Father, teach us how to do that. Father, in our our life groups, help our conversations to be appropriate, to be good, to be helpful. Father, help us to never, never participate in or practice any of the four points that were emphasized from this passage today. Father, I pray for healing for all of the Tamars in this room, the men who have been abused, the women who have been abused, pray that you will help us to find healing that we never even thought was possible because we know you're able to do just that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.